We want to welcome folks to invite folks to come up closer. Um, I'm Eddie Glaude. I'm the president-elect of uh, the American Academy of Religion. And I've been charged with the task of introducing the current president of the American Academy of Religion, Dr. Serene Jones. She is the 16th president of Union Theological Seminary and the first woman to lead this historic institution. She holds the Johnston Family Chair for Religion and Democracy there and is the author of several important books and articles. I could name all of them, but I want to just call out at least one, and that's Trauma and Grace, a theology in a ruptured world. With the skill of a theologian and philosopher and the insight of an artist, Dr. Jones plums the depths of wound and trauma in the world we inhabit and grounds a theology there amid brokenness and suffering, insisting on the power of hope, love, and grace. Uh, the book handles us so tenderly. It reminds me of something I read in one of James Baldwin's fugitive essays, The Artist's Struggle for Integrity. Quote, everybody's hurt. What is important, what corrals you, what bullwhips you, what drives you, torments you, is that you must find some way of using this to connect you with everyone else alive. You must understand that your pain is trivial, except insofar as you can use it to connect with other people's pain. And insofar as you can do that with your pain, you can be released from it. And then hopefully it works the other way around too. Insofar as I can tell you what it is to suffer, perhaps I can help you to suffer less. And of course, at the heart of all of this is love. Those of you who know President Jones, you know there is something in her smile, something that animates her laughter. You can tell when she laughs anywhere you are in the room. That something more, in that Jamesian sense of more, is betrayed in the glint in those glorious eyes of hers. That something is evident in the passionate perception that defines her scholarship. It finds its beginnings in that small town in Oklahoma, in that beautiful, amazing mom and dad and family that now guides us in these tumultuous times. That something else, that something more, is an unrelenting faith and love in everyday people, an abiding faith in all of us to be and to do better. So it is my distinct pleasure to present to you Dr. Serene Jones. The title of her talk this evening is Revolutionary Love. So good evening, everyone. It is an honor to be here with you this evening and to have the opportunity to talk with all of you about something that is so near and dear to my heart and to my own work, especially in a moment like this one, which feels so taut and so dangerous 
to pick up the theme of revolutionary love is to both talk about something as old as the hills and as new as tomorrow. But before I start jumping into revolutionary love, I want to say a few words of gratitude and thanks. Indeed, a few words of love. Um, Bonhoeffer says, in normal life, um, it's hard to remember that we receive much more than we ever give. And that if we ever forget that our achievements are not our own, but that those things that we achieve with the help of others, we have lost a track of our humanity. So in that vein, I'd first like to thank uh, the past president and the two vice presidents who I've worked with so closely to craft this year's meeting. Tom Tweed, who was the president last year, and Eddie Gloud and David Gushy, who will be the next two presidents. Uh, we decided, the four of us, to do something new in the AAR, and that was to take our presidential themes and talk about them and plan them out together so that we would have a sustained conversation going on in this academy about our values and our responsibilities. Last year, Tom Tweed, where are you, Tom? He was here, there he is, thank you, Tom. Tom talked about the topic of values in the study of religion and took us back through the territory of the relationship between theology and religious studies in a fresh new way. This year, I talk about one particular value, if you can call that, love. Next year, Eddie takes up the topic of religion and the most vulnerable, moving further into that space. And then two years from now, David Gushy talks to us about the risks and the obligations of being a scholar of religion. What is your moral responsibility, particularly in the moral framework and the public square? I also want to thank uh, the board who has worked with me and this team for the last three years. Um, in particular, Greg Johnston and Myra Rivera who came in with me and are going out with me. Um, and this evening I want to say a special word of thanks to Jack Fitzmeyer, the executive director of the AAR, who has enabled this process for now almost a decade. Uh, and next year uh, we will be sadly, but also joyously, uh, celebrating his retirement from the AAR, which means anyone who knows him well that he will now have more time to look at the stars. This year, I also want to thank the staff, which needs to be thanked every year, for pulling off this amazing feat. This year we have over 1,400 sessions and almost 10,000 attendees. I also want to, right at the beginning, remember those who aren't here. There are members who have no jobs and are paid only as adjuncts and simply can't afford to come. There are members who have refused to come and told us about it because Texas as you know, is an open carry state. We also know that there are Muslims here who did not feel safe traveling, a group from Canada who chose not to come, and others across the country. And we also have members who are right now at Standing Rock, sending prayers for us from the Sioux Nation and fighting that struggle.
May we all work to break down those walls that keep anyone away from this gathering. A couple more thank yous. I want to thank Verity Jones, my sister, and Krista Jones, my cousin, who have come to represent the huge Jones family, which comes from Oklahoma, as Eddie mentioned, and North Texas. Um, I'm, I'm not proud to say. I come from a state where all 77 counties went red. The, it was called the ruby red state, if you noticed, as the election returns were coming in. But during the talk, Verity will be holding the phone and FaceTiming my dad. Hi, dad. Um, uh, his name is Joe Jones. He is a philosophical theologian. I uh, wrote a book, The Grammar of Faith, and been a lifetime activist. And I want to thank him and my mom right off the start for raising me and my sisters in a house where justice talk and philosophical theology were everyday conversations, where Kierkegaard and King were as real as our next door neighbors, where we were cultivated and nurtured in a wisdom about that vexed relationship between human brokenness and human goodness and a household in which there was an undying yearning for a revolution of love. And that yearning felt more real and more important than any house or car we would ever own. So thanks, Dad. Thank you for that. And I also want to say a final thanks to all my union friends and my friends from all over the country. Uh, my friends who don't know anything about the study of religion but like to talk about love, they like to talk about revolution, the people at Union who got sick of me talking about revolutionary love, and particularly all of the people across a multitude of faith traditions who shared a commitment to social justice and social action, who talked about what revolutionary love means in these varied traditions. I first came up with this topic, and he's here too somewhere, I think I see him, sitting in Tom's diner on 112th and Broadway almost two years ago, having breakfast with Cornell West. Cornell, where are you? There he is, yes. I was pulling my hair out over how to frame these issues that um, I wanted to discuss at the AAR and have the whole um, gathering grapple with. And this was long before the hate-filled campaign that we've just seen, but the ground was beginning to shake. Indeed, the ground has been shaking for a long time. But Black Lives Matter was beginning to take the public stage. Modi had been elected in India. Turkey was unraveling as the fascist state rose tighter. There were signs of Brexit in the air. Australia was teetering on a vote, which finally happened towards an alt-right government. Brazil was teetering. Putin's reign was growing, Assad was there, and the 2008 market crash was pressing upon us all, and we were living under the stifled presidency of Obama. You could feel the rumblings of the neoliberal economy giving way to fascist politics across the world and in this nation, as in these contexts, people responded to the speed of technological growth and the growing income disparity with a politics that required increased repression and military force. The ground was also shaking because the reality of climate change was hitting us harder and harder. The superstorms were growing 
and our awareness of what we were facing and even the possibility of turning around was looking grimmer and grimmer. And even with all of that, I, and I think Cornell, did not foresee in that breakfast conversation how quickly this country could tumble in to a fascist state. And I have to say that I've never been more nervous about giving a talk because I've never felt that so much was at stake in a particular moment as it is at this moment as we grapple with this new reality. This past week, Wendy Farley, a member of the Constructive Theology Work Group, sent around to many of us a poem that struck deep with me as I was wrestling with the words to say to you tonight by W.H. Auden, written on September 1st in 1939. Auden is looking out at a world preparing for war, at the rise of National Socialism in Germany, and what felt like the failed dream of a more just and socialist America. He writes, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain, afraid, as clever hopes expire, clever hopes of a low, dishonest decade. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie that lives in our brains, the lie of something we think of as the sensual, noble, working, man in the street. It's a lie of authority, the authority whose buildings grope the sky. Truly, there has never been such a thing as the state because no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to citizens or police. We must love one another or die. Then he adds, defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and dust, what a great line, eros and dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. It's easy for me to feel the negation and despair in a moment like this, but also to hold on to that flickering flame and words that keep echoing in the back of my own mind are those I say almost every morning to myself, the words of Adrian Rich that reminds me my heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed that I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, with no extraordinary power of their own, reconstitute the world. So I chose this theme of revolutionary love because I thought it captured an aspiration, not because it was a term that I sought to carefully define. In the midst of the seismic shifts that we are feeling, it marks the space of a call to a possible way of being that we have yet to imagine. And it's very important to note, to remember at every turn, that at this point in human history, we could just as easily slide towards tyranny as we could towards freedom. And what would it take in that context for us to choose freedom and love? Because 
those two words reach beyond what we know, no one here, in fact, will live to see it. It's so big we can't grasp its contours. And yet it's not something yet to come, what I call revolutionary love. It's here. We're in the middle of the revolution. And so this evening I want to say that my hope is that our great-great-grandchildren look back with pride over the fact that all of us here in this room have had the privilege to be part of the change that was for good and that they not look back on shame at the fact that we failed, at the fact that we failed. Another poem that often comes to mind is called The Company of Strangers, which describes the cracking and the flow, the thunder made when glaciers break as being both the thunder of undoing and the thunder of opening. And then in the poem, the poet says, we are at a point in time where all the harms of the past have come up to grip us and they will not let us go until we take the greatest stride that humanity has ever taken. The stride of love. Revolutionary love. So what might a definition of it look like? Well, I need to first say that revolution is appended to love. Love is not a feature of every revolution, but love, whenever it truly is, is revolutionary. It's interesting that discussions of love are not often found in political conversations about the nature of our public life together. I could do a whole lecture on how this goes back to Plato and travels forward through the Enlightenment, the associations made by the philosophers of love with the affections, with the lower human drives, and therefore associated with the feminine, with women, with sexuality, with the space of intimate hidden life, eventually completely with the realm of the domestic sphere and the work of care and all that wrapped up together in the work of religion. All of this held in contrast to those principled words that constitute the realm of the public sphere where men do their work. And none of these associations of love as it has traveled through history have ever talked about it in the collective sense or talked about it as a power that has collective force. Love is a social force that has the power to tear down and to build up is a theme that is relatively new to us in the context of the human sphere and the political realm. So this is what makes the words of the great James Baldwin. You know, I've been hearing so much about Baldwin today, and I know he's going to be in the middle of it next year, too, that we, ought, we, we should just dedicate this year's AAR and next year's AAR to James Baldwin <laughs> because he is here speaking to us in this moment. Um, so in my description of revolutionary love, I used a quote from Baldwin, and Baldwin is talking about fear, uh, fear that is born in racist America. And it's a fear, he says, that requires us to put on masks to hide ourselves because we fear being seen. And that the only thing that can save us as a nation will be the taking off of these masks and the capacity to truly see each other, and the only thing that has the power to remove those masks, they're the masks of race, is love. 
And then he says very clearly, I'm, I'm not talking about a silly American intimate sense of love. But I'm talking about love as a deep, fierce social force. Let me call it grace, he says, because it is a miracle. So what is he saying about love in this context? Well, I want to put forth just three features of love that I think draw it out and separate it from our usual context for thinking about what we understand as the nature of social justice. The first thing about love is it builds on an insight which is irresistible in our present moment, coming to us from science, the social sciences, and also from our interconnected world. And that is the reality that we are interconnected, that we live in relation to one another, intertwined and interdependent. And even if we refuse to see it, it is nonetheless a feature of what it means to be human in relation to other people and to the planet itself. We are interdependent and interconnected. Secondly, it also builds on that very important notion that we assume that all human beings and the planet around us are creatures and the creation of equal value. And here's where the classic notion of justice comes in. If we are of equal value, then fairness, inclusion, equal distribution become central notions for how we understand how we govern our life together. But you take another deeper spiritual turn when you descend into the language of love. Because to love one another is to go beyond just assuming the equal value, but it's to actually care deeply about the other, to see the other, to touch their body, to know their pains, to be able to listen and hear their particularity. To fall in love is to lose yourself and yet at the same time gain yourself in a new way. To love is to, in very deep and sustained ways, seek the thriving, indeed the social flourishing of the other. It produces actions which require the care of the other. It produces dispositions and desires that savor and cherish the other. It's marked by curiosity and wonder, and it's a fierce in its capacity to hate what harms to hate what harms. So it's a new thing for us to see and begin to understand the collective possibility of love when we put these features together and see what they feel like when they move forward in a social movement as we saw in King and Malcolm and Gandhi and Becker and Mandela. And hopefully that list will go on for a long time. John Powell, who runs the Race and Democracy Center at Berkeley, talks about what it takes to participate in revolutionary love. And he says, well, it takes these three things. Just off the top of his head, he throws them out. It takes a great deal of hubris to love collectively in a revolutionary form that requires change. It means you have to believe that you can and must act and that it will change. You have to believe that. But secondly, it takes a lot of humility because you know that you are going to be pulled apart by your failures. And yet it has to have tied up right in the middle of hubris and humility a commitment and a willingness to sustain radical change because it's hard to deeply love and to not be harmed if one refuses to harm. 
So love as a social reality, as the force of a revolution, is finally at the end of the day true even when you lose love's struggle. And it's important for us to think about it in terms of its negative side because love can also always in every moment as we see happening around the world be a trick that pulls together the dynamic hating forces of tribalism. And so to prevent this negative side of what we think of the power of love, it's important to say, as James Baldwin would, revolutionary love is at its very heart a process of truth-telling. So I want to turn back now to the election and to the truth-telling revolutionary work of love. First, I'm tired of people saying that it was the white working class that did this, who felt abandoned by the Democrats. I have no doubt they felt abandoned by the Democrats. But it is not true that that claim excludes the reality of their racism. Secondly, I'm tired of people in the United States saying we have this great divide and we simply don't understand people on the other side. I do. These are my people. I grew up in Oklahoma. They're my relatives. Not my relatives here. I have to make clear. No one gets to come up and yell at them. <laughs> but I went to high school with them and church with them. They are people we know. There is no mystery there. Both of these are attempts to cover up what all of us know. And that is that it is the fear of white Christian Americans about the U.S. becoming a nation of color that won this election. It's about evangelicals, it's about Christianity, it's about the construction of whiteness. And it's not just about anger, it's important to say it's also about fear. The fear that white people have, that black people and brown people will kill them. That they also know that if this were to happen, as Baldwin reminds us, they know they deserve it which leads to psychic dynamics of repression and shame that have got us to this awful moment in our history. And it is tied deeply to the collapse but still strength of that story we tell about American exceptionalism, which sees in it the creation of a whiteness which tromps forward into history, ever upward, ever innovative, ever progressive, and ever white. Revolutionary love tells us a very different story about who we are, and it is a hard story to tell. James Baldwin, again, I come back to him, says, you know, Norwegians and Swedes, they only became white when they came to America. And they became white through actions, through the genocide of Native Americans by raping Native women and burning down their villages. They became white through the creation of chattel slavery which lasted for 300 years as the most developed and brutal system of torture ever seen in the history of the world. They became white through the creation of that. They became white through the crushing time and again of the working class and the constant re-imprisonment of immigrants. They became white through the raping of women time and again, generation after generation, and the ravaging of land all along the way. When we think of the United States as made up of a land of people, 
white people who have been constructed to do these things, we see a very different story of a white monster, a white supremacist. Think about what it takes to turn a human being into a person capable of with brutal forethought executing time and again this level of violence upon the bodies of human beings. And until we tell a different story and until we undo that white supremacist social construction of identity, blood will flow again and again because it was created to be brutal. If I had time, I would here go off into a longer discussion of shame and guilt. And I uh, point you towards uh, the very path, a very powerful last album of Leonard Cohen, in which he writes the song, You Want It Darker, in which he's exploring the way shame plays itself out in a kind of American death drive that what undergirds all of this violence is the recognition that in fact it was done and done willingly and the shame that that produces within the nation as a whole, both those who have been shamed and those who bear the shame of that violence, leads us to elect a man who bears all that shame and turns it into greatness because he is completely shameless. But that's a topic for another day. So I want to turn now to this question of what is to be done. Old Lennon stays with us. And what does it mean to ask that question, not just as a nation, not just as a global citizen, but here in the AAR, as a collection of scholars of religion and teachers and thinkers who all come together to tangle with and stir around in the mess of this thing that we call faith, religion, however we describe it. I want to start with two quotes that I think give us guidance. The first is a quote by Edward Zaid, who in 1999 gave his presidential address to the American Language Association. He was sick with leukemia at the time, and he is looking back over his career. The presentation is entitled, Heroism and Humanism. And Zaid describes the dialectical tension that the scholar lives with as they both grasp their complicity in the destructive ideals and the dangers of critical thinking, as at the same time they see that they are nonetheless called to be heroic in their continued imagining and their continued production of knowledge, which although it inevitably fails, nonetheless has a predilection for the future. He says, we must cultivate a heroic unwillingness to rest in the consolidation of previously existing attitudes. We need to be always recovering the topics of the mind from the turbulent activities of human life. Said had this intense connection to life as it had lived. To rest from those turbulent actualities to rest from the, what he calls, uncontro uncontrollable mystery of the bestial floor and to submit this to the multiple and multifarious inevitabilities of judgment. We are called heroically, according to Zaid, to live 
and to tell the truth, which we ourselves will always challenge for the sake of a future that requires this historic and heroic commitment. I want to add to that a quote from James Baldwin, once again, a quote that Eddie shared with me that captures the fullness of what I want to say about revolutionary love and, and here substitute religion scholar for writers, although many of us are writers. Writers are compelled to take it upon themselves to describe us to ourselves as we are now. We, Baldwin says in 1961, we are the generation that must throw everything into the endeavor to remake America into what we say we want it to be. Without this endeavor, we will perish. The writer-scholar must always remember that morality, if it is to remain and to become morality, must be perpetually examined, I love this, cracked open, changed, and made new. And we must remember, however powerful may be the multitudes who want to forget, that this life of moral reflection and its revision is finally the only touchstone we have. And this life is dangerous. And without the joyful acceptance of this danger, there can finally be safety for no one anywhere anymore. That comes from an essay entitled, As Much Truth As One Can Bear. He tells us of the joyful, lane, lane, the joyful danger of a life devoted to telling the truth about who we are right now. A life committed to cracking open morality to imagine yet another morality, a vocation committed to the safety of everyone everywhere. It's quite a calling to put before us Zaid and Baldwin as we think about the work of the American Academy of Religion. And so now I'm just going to go straight to the point about our work and move into what we might think of as both a pastoral and prophetic mode. Our classrooms may well be historically the places where the biggest lies have been crafted and told about our nation. But we can use these spaces, these sacred spaces, to be a place, and they have been a place, where truths are told about our nation and its brutal history and the brutal horror of white supremacy and the curse it has upon our land. And we can talk about many moralities in religion and ethical frames that have undergird these lies, but we can also crack them open so that new moral frames can emerge, new forms of being human together. I can't stress this enough. What's so exciting about this adventure is we have yet to imagine them. And it matters to our students. I'll never forget last year's AAR when Ruby Sales, a civil rights activist, spoke about how important in the civil rights movement the songs of freedom and the echoing theology that spurred them forward was to them. She described it as the armor that kept them safe even though most of her and her friends had rejected religion outright. But it echoed around in their heads. They had a frame 
And then she turned to all of us and she says, you know, I feel like we have sent our children out into empire in this last generation with no armor to protect them. With no armor to protect them. We need to step into that space and be heroic in our daring to give them armor. And we need to be self-critical of our academic arrogance in the process of doing this. I think the world that reaches out ahead of us is a world in which we need to learn to speak with a heroically plain voice. And we need to put behind us the petty battles of the academy to be able to see the larger fight ahead. As we have petty battles here, we need to remember the jobless, the adjunct, the underpaid in our own system that sit here in this room with us. We need to remember how within this community itself are vulnerable scholars, vulnerable teachers, vulnerable human beings, and that we are all not equal in terms of the dangers we face in the years ahead. As an academy, that is a truth that is hard to bear because it demands that we take an assessment of the risks and face the fact that they are different. They are different for me as a white woman who has tenure and a good salary from a Muslim woman with a young child and no tenured or a disabled African-American man who's been turned down for every job in the academy for 17 years because he had to check the felony box. But I want to get even more concrete. I'm especially mindful tonight of those of you who teach heroically in classrooms across the United States, but particularly in the middle, that are filled with Trump supporters. Let's say it, young neo-fascists who don't even know they're young neo-fascists. What a challenge it is to teach religion and philosophy of religion and history in those contexts. You will be outrightly cursed and demeaned by your own students. We know that. But there are others there that will listen. Your heroism is essential, and we appreciate it. I am aware, secondly, of those of you who teach in contexts where all of your students are among the most terrified. These are two very different contexts. To teach in a community college where the trauma of deportation, of registration, of literally the undoing of lives, of health care, of marriages, of bonded families, that those realities are so vivid and alive to them that they cannot think, they can't focus, they can't learn. What does one do teaching in that context? You love them and you fight for them. Thirdly, I'm mindful of those of you who will have mixed classrooms where conflicts will erupt. And, it will f and your job in that context will be, and you know, with our urge towards politeness, your, your job will be to fan those flames and to step into the heat of all of that collective sin. Yes, let me call it sin and evil. And in the midst of it, wrestle with them piece by piece, arm by arm, value by value, step by step. And then finally, I am very much aware of those of you sitting here who, who, who teach in progressive, smart, privileged context with students who will think that they have nothing to learn 
because they already know it all about what we should be doing. Everyone has one of these students. I was one of these students. Um, these are the activist students who will most likely, as time goes by, find it easiest to be mad eventually at you or at their own classmates until someone in the class who's an organizer and knows the hard work of social change calls them on the carpet. In love, help them keep their eyes on the prize, for the struggle will be a long one. And we must practice revolutionary love that allows us to give to the movement the thing that we do best. And this is very important for us to remember. It will call for patience and urgency at the same time because we can drive this movement of revolutionary love forward in different lanes. You know, I, I, this is a very rough categorization, but there are some in our midst who astound me at their capacity for build, building bridges in contexts where my own anger allows me to even draw close. We need to thank people for that work, and we need to realize that they're probably going to be always mad because they're going to be losing the fight. Secondly, there's the group of people in this academy who I think of as the ER doctors and nurses who are called to simply work with the traumatized to try to keep them alive and upright. They are going to be tired all the time and traumatize themselves. And then I think of the third group, the organizers and the activists, the organizers who are going to be working hard but frustrated by the activists who won't make the phone calls and the activists who will be on their high horse, but at least they'll be in the street and driving the energy forward and open to learning from those organizers, hopefully, who they will eventually be and the ER rooms they will end up in and the bridge builders they may unwillingly but perhaps gladly become one day. Last thing, there's going to be a lot of specific policy decisions that faculty and their institutions will have to take a stand on. We will not have a choice. Here's just a few of them. Trump has already made it clear that any institution, he has not enacted this yet, but we'll see what happens, that any institution who admits to its programs an undocumented student, a dreamer, will lose all of their federal funding, not just for that student, but for the entire university, college, or seminary. That's draconian. But that is a reality of what we'll have to face. At Union, we put a policy in four years ago that we would provide extra financial aid and happily admit DACA students. It's a policy we're not going back on. And so now we're beginning to hear conversations about what it means for institutions of higher education to be sanctuary institutions. Second, the Trump government will use our institutions and our uh, data gathering processes to collect their own information. You can't register Muslims without a process of calling forth that registration. So we cannot participate in that process. Thirdly, it has been echoed, it has been said that federal money given to institutions of higher education will be measured in terms of the interest rate and the amount of it by the income of the graduates of a particular program. So if you're in a program that does not sound productive according to a capitalist model of production, then your federal funding may be cut if not dramatically diminished. 
And finally, we're going to see the dramatic loss of health care coverage if there is any transgendered person in your pool of students or even candidates, or if you as an institution participate in a health plan that includes birth control. The fascist regime will have to exert its force through institutions. And the question is, will we have the courage to fight at that level? Again, I hope we all follow closely the conversations about what it means to become sanctuary institutions. And this is going to mean working locally with other schools and institutions in our neighborhoods and cities. Because right now, public education is the most at risk because it has the highest number of Muslims in the United States enrolled in it and the highest number of dreamers and immigrants. And with a single swath of a pen, an entire community college could be wiped off the map. Three last words. All of this is very traumatic in varying degrees depending on where we stand and what power we have. But all of us need to at times just turn off our television and don't believe what is said about who we are. Don't normalize it or let it get inside you because it is sure to take you over. And at the same time, never underestimate our collective agency. This is a collective agency in this room right now. Revolutionary love can be imagined into being with every collectivity. But silence, hear me clearly, is complicity. Passivity is not okay. Keeping intellectual distance is a deluded state. Denial will only make you sick eventually. Arrogance is cowardice. We don't have time to despair. For the ones we love need us as we need them. We all have pictures and stories in our mind that we turn to to see what that social world we long for might look like. And I want to end my talk this evening by sharing with you mine. Uh, she probably doesn't remember many, many years ago when she pointed me towards this story, Farrah Griffin. But it comes from Toni Morrison and is recounted most succinctly in her reflections on the house that race built. And she says this in her amazing Toni Morrison, complex way. Love, home, I want to imagine not the threat of freedom or its tentative panting fragility, but the concrete thrill of borderlessness, of a land of outdoors safety, where a sleepless, a sleepless woman could arise from her bed, wrap a shawl around her shoulders and step into the moonlight. And if she felt like it, she could sit on the step, gazing up at the stars. Or if she wanted, she could walk into the yard and then wander from there out down the road with no lamp and no fear. The hiss and crackle from the side of a road of a twig that breaks would not scare her because whatever it was, it was not creeping up on her. And in the light that shone from a window up ahead, she could hear the cry of a colicky baby and sit on the step with the mother 
giving them a sip of water, rubbing the baby's belly, gossiping, until finally the child falls asleep. Her friend goes back into the house, and there in the moonlight, she sits, deciding whether or not she will go home and back to sleep, refreshed from her wanderings, or wander out down the road further because no one anywhere considers her prey. Thank you all. Before everyone leaves, I just want to remind you that tomorrow at 11.45, Michelle Alexander and Kelly Brown Douglas, Douglas will be talking together about mass incarceration and mass deportation. Tomorrow at 5, the AAR will be holding a session to discuss what the AAR should do in light of this election. Monday morning at 9 o'clock, there's a special session called by the Liberation Theology Groups to talk about teaching. At noon on Monday, uh, we can hear from Julian Castro, former mayor of uh, San Antonio, who's been a very vocal opponent of the wall. And then finally, Monday evening, in our last plenary session, we will hear from the Reverend Dr. William Barber. So there's lots more of conversation and inspiration and critical thinking to happen. Thank you.